Welcome to My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 393. This program is dedicated the merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menuchalena and Miriam Baschaya Sara Altois, Yukusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todres ben Miriam and Sara Bas Rochel Altois. So we are coming now to the second half of the month of Adarishan. Actually, going to this conclusion, this coming Shabbos is going to be Shabbos Mavarchim, the Shabbos that blesses the second month of Adar, which is the month when we celebrate the full glorious Purim. This is also the week of Parshas Vayakel, and another Parsha, special Parsha, one of the four chapters we read in this period from the month of Adar through the next weeks till Pesach. So we read Shkolim. We read uh, Zohar, Parah, and Achodesh. So we'll be Parsha Shkolim. We'll also be read a second Torah scroll we brought out. And we read the chapter of Kisisa, the beginning of the people giving and donating the half shekel, the half coin, to the Mishkan, to the tabernacle. So let's talk about the lessons we learned from that, as well as some other very interesting topics, some new ones, some follow-up. And again, always a good opportunity to welcome you those that haven't been part of this program, please thank you for joining. You'll find it quite provocative, interesting, hopefully. Basically, it's all driven by questions that come, user-generated questions, by questions that come from you about anything you wish. You go to chassidahsupply.com. There's a completely anonymous forum where you can submit any question. The only challenge, frankly, is that the questions are coming in faster than I can cover them all. So we keep moving along, but sometimes it'll take a little longer for me to answer and address. I need to also sometimes prioritize based on the time that we're in and so on. So let's begin. What are the lessons? Let's start from Pasha's Vayakel. Then the lessons from Shkolem. A few questions that came in about this and about other Mishkan-related, the sanctuary-related issues that we read in these week's chapters. So Vayakil is the next to the last chapter of this book of Exodus, the book of Shemois, called by the Ramban, Sefer HaGeula, the book of redemption. The obvious reason is because the whole book is, begins with the redemption of the Jewish people from the Egyptian slavery, from the Egyptian exile. But the truth is, if you think about it, the Geula was only really in chapter Boy. That's when the Jews leave Egypt. Shmois and Va'era, the first two chapters, are all about the Golos Mitzrayim, about the exile, not the redemption. Boy, okay, Beshalach is a continuation when they leave and they come to the sea. You could say that's the conclusion of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt. But after that, once you get to Yisrael, is about the story of Sinai, Mishpatim, continuation, the laws that were delivered and given from Sinai. Then Truma Tetzava Kisisa Vayakal Pakude. The last five chapters are all about the building and the, the, the instructions, the command, and the building of the sanctuary, of the Mishkan. So why would the Ramban call it all Sefer Agula? The answer is because essentially that's all the central theme of it all. Gula doesn't just mean the technical leaving the land called Egypt, it refers to the entire building of a nation. And it really was in three stages. 
One was actually freeing themselves, being freed by God from their bondage, which really refers to the freedom we all go through when we get out of our mitzarim v'gvulim, anything that constrains us, our inhibitions, our fears, our insecurities, all those forces that, that cause distress, mitzar. So really it refers to that. The second stage of that is receiving the mandate of God. It's not just about transcendence and going out of our limited places and constrained places, but also embracing the mandate, the mission for which we were created. And finally, it all consummates with the building of the Mishkan, that we actually fulfill that mandate and why we left this constraints in order to transform this world, not just to free ourselves from its constraints, but to transform the material world itself into a divine home into a sanctuary, into a mishkan. Build for me a sanctuary and I will dwell among you. That's all the Geula experience. So the whole book is about Geula. Now even the first two chapters are stepping stones. It's true, while they were in that hard bondage and labor and genocide, it was terrible. God, Moses says to God, Why are you doing evil to these people? But once we understand the redemption, we realize the whole purpose of that, as God told Abraham earlier, is really to, is, is in order for the Yerid Tzayr Chaliyah, the descent, in order to come to a greater ascent, that afterwards your children, who will be, yes, enslaved first, will then leave with great treasure, and great treasure, both physical treasure, material treasure, but also spiritual treasure. They will have become a transformed nation, a nation of truly free people, as the morale the Prague says, that they no longer can ever be enslaved by anybody. Because remember, enslavement isn't just physical, it's also psychological and emotional and spiritual. And that freedom is expressed in the continuing story. So the first two chapters are, the, are the, essentially the, the, you can say, the springboard that ultimately lead to the Geula. And then the Geula is actualized through receiving the mandate, Matan Torah, Sinai, and actualizing it in the building of the temple when they actually, the seventh generation from Abraham, which is Moshe Rabbeinu, and his generation actually bring the Shekhinah, the divine presence, back to earth as it was in the beginning of creation. Yes, and afterwards a golden calf is built, and then we have the story of the second tablets. We discussed this last week, and the transformation, the tshuva. So it's all part of this uh, of this narrative, which concludes next week's chapter after this, but Pekude, the conclusion of Exodus, which is the erection, the establishment of the sanctuary, of the temple, and the beginning of the service there. So, <clears throat> that is essentially the story. How does Vayakel come into it? So Vayakel means Mo- Moshe gathered the people. It's continuing story of the building of the sanctuary, but Vayakel, is, it's, the name of the chapter captures a central theme, gathering. As a matter of fact, as a result of Moses' gathering, we learn that Moses established a custom that Lahakil Kihilas, that Jews throughout history, should establish a custom that they should gather together in synagogues, in houses of prayer, in houses of study, and read and study and learn together, which is the essence of why we come together in a shul, especially on Shabbos and holidays, and the truth is today almost on a daily basis. What is the power of gathering together? Kihila, a kihila, vayakel, is the power of synergy. That we, even though each of us is an individual with our unique skills, but there's also the necessity to complement each other. 
In the words of Hillel, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Yes, critical. Your individual strengths, your individual mission in this world. But then he continues, if I'm only for myself, who am I? We are one instrument or one musical presentation among an orchestra of many. And we need to create that harmony within diversity that comes in the power of the synergy. Not in any way to compromise individuality, God forbid, but actually to add to it. So when you put letters together and turn it into a word, the letters only become more powerful. Let's say you take the word Baruch. It's made up of four letters. Beis, Reish, Vav, Chaf. Four powerful letters. These letters can be part of other words. You put them together, you get more than the sum of the parts. The meaning Baruch, to be blessed. And then the Beis is enriched by it. The Reish is enriched. The Vav, the Chaf. The individual is also... That's what synergy is about. Synergy is not in place of the individual. It's a sum total and more, what's called the Eir al Kolona, an additional almost invisible energy that's added. It's like the Talmud says in Seita, when it talks about the scouts, when they brought back these large fruits from Israel. So it calculates how they carried it. So it makes a statement, a very powerful statement, that has a tremendous lesson to us in Vayakel. And what is that? that if you can lift 100 pounds, and I can lift 100 pounds, I'm just paraphrasing it, together you'd think we can lift 200 pounds. No, we can lift more than 200, 210, 215. Where did that extra strength came from? come from? It's because the sum of the parts adds to something that's more than the sum, the synergy. Take three people, each can lift 100 pounds, they can lift more than, more than, it's not double two, not, in other words, the same amount, but exponentially it grows, so they can lift even more than 330. And the more people that come into it, the synergy only becomes a stronger and greater one. That's the power of Vayakel. <coughs> the power of bringing together many, and then you have the combination of the individual plus the kihila. This was vital as the Jews were building the sanctuary. Because though the sanctuary on one hand has many components, but it's all, all united toward one goal, toward one greater goal. So each individual contributes to it. Each one is complemented by the other. And then altogether you have something more than the sum of the parts. This is what we call hiskalalus. So we need to have distinct levels. So on day one you have a single. Day two of creation you have a diversity which can lead to chaos or can even lead to conflict and divisiveness. And day three, harmony within diversity. Shalom, Tiferes, beauty. Harmony within diversity. So that lesson to us is very clear. We're expected to be individuals, but we also expected to appreciate each other. And look, look around. The most secure person who respects themselves and have that self-esteem is the person that can coexist with anyone else. It's those that are fighting for their own turf, either because they're insecure or they don't know who they are, are the most difficult to get along with others because they are not secure with who they are. So they either think someone is taking away something from them or they think their identity is that other person. So it all comes down to strong individuality will lead to strong harmony and strong synergy. The lesson cannot be more relevant today than ever because we have these challenges in our communities, in our families, in our homes. How do we respect individuality while also creating the synergy that's more than the sum of the parts? And the answer is bittel. When we have bittel, it's not about you, it's not about me. It's about the greater cause. And that greater cause requires 
both your individual contribution as well as you complementing others, that's the story. And look at the human, healthy human body and look at nature. It's exactly the story of all of them. Harmony within diversity. Bayake. Shkolem has a similar message. The chapter, the special chapter we read. So there are many lessons in Shkolem. Shkolem are the half shekels that they brought, the machsis shekel that the people brought, which was turned, it was used then for the adonim, the, the foundational uh, elements that held up the beams in the Mishkan. Later in the temple, would be used for the Karbonus Sibra to buy, purchase the public offerings. So everyone had to give the same amount, exactly the same amount. There were contributions to the sanctuary where there was distinction. People gave according to their abilities and their strengths and their talents. But when it came to Machsas Shekel, it says, the wealthy one doesn't give more and the poor one doesn't give less. Everyone is a half. So it's an equalizer teaching us, number one, that we all in some ways are, have something in common. But it's still individuals. So the Machsas Shekel has a second message. Why only half? Why not everyone give a full shekel? So there are many reasons given, but one of them is to teach us that we need each other. We are half without the other. Another way of looking at it, we're half without God. God is our partner. A partnership is not a compromise. A partnership is a synergetic addition. In a healthy marriage, in a healthy union, it's not two forces that are, have to compete. Two are greater than one. Because when they join together with the bitl, with the humility, with the dedication, not to themselves, but to the greater cause, then their individuality is necessary and their commonality is necessary. So Maxis HaShekel is the ultimate lesson in bitl. You're a half. You may be a complete person with many qualities, but at the end of the day, you're the half of the story without the other. Not meant to weaken us, it meant to strengthen us, actually. Like I just discussed about synergy. Not that... The group is not meant to elicit conformity. It's meant to enhance the individuality by creating the synergetic effect that's added. So it's also a critical lesson in life, a critical lesson in marriage and love, the ability to understand two half souls. Not that half means incomplete. Half means that you need to transcend yourself to be really complete. And that is through another. This all leads us to the blessing that we leave from this year, this leap year, from the first Adar to the second Adar, joy. Joy is Peretz Geder. It pierces, it penetrates, it transcends boundaries, which is what we're looking for. We're looking not to remain constrained, limited, to transcend boundaries, but at the same time, within the boundaries of our existence, to experience transcendence that's beyond. That the structure itself helps us transcend structure. Musical notes are very structured, but when you play them, it creates a magic that's beyond the structure of, this, of just the sum, of the, sum of, the, of, the, of the parts. It's not just a bunch of sounds or musical notes. It creates something that's called melody, harmony, beauty. Okay. Now, a few questions that are connected to this chapter, to previous chapters, but this is definitely the theme since they came in the last few days. I said, you know what, it's, it's appropriate to read. So let me begin with this. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, Aloha from Honolulu, Hawaii. I have a question for your Sunday night show. In recent weeks, in various places, there have been discussions about the verse, about the verse, God's telling Moses, 
Build for me a sanctuary and I will dwell among Besechom. Among them. Meaning among the people. Translated, making me a sanctuary and I will dwell in them. And a common explanation of the seemingly mistaken grammar, because you build a sanctuary, I will dwell in it. In the sanctuary. So the explanation is that the verse uses the plural term in them, in them to signify that the emphasis for each one of us to abide by the Torah's teachings and then the Shekhinah, divine presence, and God's divine presence will be revealed in each of us. Yes, that the to dwell in each one of us, in each person. My question is, if the main purpose of creation is to reveal God's presence in each of us, then why do we need to have a centralized holy temple in Jerusalem? Yeah. Then the question the other way around. Then just say, okay, here are ways to build a temple within yourself. Seemingly like an obvious question. But think about it. The very verse is telling us the following. I want you to build an actual structure which will be a microcosm of you of the way I created you, meaning the human being. And when you look at it, it's meant to be a lesson to you. So when you look at the building, it's not just the building, it's not about God dwelling in the building, it's about God dwelling in us. And the building is the model that we look to, to learn from. That's the point. So you have a model in the Holy Temple, on the Holy Temple Mount, the place that God chose holier than any other place in the world. What in the world, Jacob calls it Shara Shamayim, the gate to heaven, the interface. So we need something in this physical world that serves as a perfect example, a perfect template, a model of where heaven meets earth, the interface between the spirit and between spirit and matter. And when we look at it, everything going on there is meant to be going on in here. Even when the temple stood, it's not like we're just now. We're just compensating. Even when the temple stood, it was meant to permeate the individual, not just the building. That's why when there was sinas chinam, unfortunately, baseless hatred, God said, what do I need a temple for? I need it to be within you. If you guys can't get along, if you have conflict and discord and divisiveness, the whole purpose is missing. I'm not here to reside in a building. What do I need a home for if I'm not a home within you? The home is meant to be within you. And this is true about the general world. We're not just individuals, we also live in a world. Our purpose is not just that we become homes for God, but we create the physical world around us. Our physical homes, our physical environments to also be a home for God. And that's point number two. Not just being a model, it's just telling us that's the purpose, to transform the world around us, not just ourselves. Okay. Another question was about the Kruvim. When we read about the building of the temple, you find... One of the interesting and more mysterious entities is when it's said about building the Ark, the Holy Ark, which was in the Holy of Holies. So there's a cover on the Ark, and on top of the cover it says, Make for me two cherubs. Kruvim. And the commentaries all wonder, what are these Kruvim? There are actually a lot of opinions about it. Rashi, quoting from Talmud and Medrash, they were like in the image of two children, a boy and a girl. Others say it was like the image of angels. Others connected to the image of the divine chariot of Yecheskel's vision. And many more different explanations, including the angels that stood at the Garden of Eden, not letting anyone in. 
So, so it's many different symbolisms. And what was the point of it? The, the ark we understand is the ark, the container for Torah, which is the center of it all for, this, for the, the, the tablets, including the broken tablets. It needs a cover. It also has significance. But what is the true, the, the, the Keruvim? So generally, even though there are many opinions, generally two, Rashi and the Ramban. Rashi says like children, and he says this indicates the love of God to the Jewish people. So the two symbolism of the, the two infants or children is about love. And that's when the Kruvim faced each other, it was a sign that God was expressing his love to the people. When they didn't face each other, it was a sign that it was not good times. The Ramban sees it as an extension of the Torah. So he says it's the divine chariot, the Merkava, which also had images, the four different sides that Yecheskel saw, and that's what the Kruvim represented, the angels in the divine chariot. Because there it's about God's presence among the people, which is in the Torah. So it's a question, is it about God loving the people? Or is the focus on how God manifests through Torah? And that's what the Ramban says. So what are the Kerubim on the top of the Holy Ark? What was their job and purpose? Since we don't know today where the Holy Ark is hidden, what are today's replacements for what the Kerubim were supposed to accomplish? So I just gave two of other, and there are other explanations as well. But essentially, remember, it's the divine presence manifesting in existence. That's the key thing to remember. The question is, what aspect is this, is this focusing on? So how do we replace it today? Everything has, like, just like the offerings in the temple are, are to me, they became carbonus tiknum. Tfilas became carbonus tiknum, or became tmidim tiknum. Prayer is in place of the service in the temple in the offerings. So what is the Aran? Torah, study Torah. That's one thing of the Aran. So according to the Ramban, it's the Kruvim, that are essentially the divine presence within the Torah. So when we study Torah, we're drawing down Elokos, godliness, through the Torah. As we learn in Tanya chapter 5, how the Yichud Nifla, when we learn Torah, you get united with God. According to Rashi, you can say, how do we so-called, what's the symbolism of the Kruvim today? It's the love that God has for the people. And you could also say our love for God. The love that comes in both directions. So it's not just studying Torah, of course, is critical. So it has another aspect, is when we say, we love God. Or it says, God loves us. I love you, says God. This love, which really is our sustainable force, especially in difficult times in Golas, is the symbolism of the Kruvim today. It's interesting that when the Babylonians went into the Holy of Holies and desecrated it, they found the Kruvim facing each other. So the question is asked, it was a time of destruction. And Chassidus explains that in the darkest moments is when you see the greatest love, because God did not kill the people. He took out his wrath on the stones, on the wall, on the stones and on the wood. But the Jewish people were preserved. So sometimes in the darkest moments you see the deepest love. So though, yes, there was a need for repair, a need for plenty of problems, and the temple could not stand any longer, but the Kruvim, the deepest love, is sometimes comes 
right, the, right at the moment when things are dark. That's why in Tishabov, in the darkest moments when the flames were going highest, the temple was being burned, that's what it says, Mashiach was born. That's why we say Nachim, Darizal explains. We, cons- we are consoled with the prayer of Nachim in the darkest moment. Okay. Was the what was the were the, was the people the people donating materials to make the, the tabernacle an atonement for people donating materials to make the golden calf? Were the donations to the Mishkan an atonement for the golden calf? Well, as we know, there are three different opinions of the order of events that happened after Sinai. We know the Jews, the Jewish people 39 days later built a golden calf. What about the Mishkan? When you read it, it's not so clear what's the order actually happened. So there's one opinion, Rashi's opinion, that first came the golden calf, and after that, all the events, the Mishkan, the contributions to it, the building of it, even the command, all came afterwards. And in that case, what we say, that when they gave the Machsas Shashekel, and the contributions to the Mishkan was to atone for the, the, the grave sin of the golden calf, where they used the gold for the wrong thing. Now they're using the gold for the temple. There's another opinion that it happened after the Mishkan. And there's another opinion that, meaning that the golden calf came after the Mishkan. Everything was built before. Everything was instructed and the donations, the building. And then there's an opinion that the command to build the temple came before, but then came the golden calf and then the actual donations and the building of the temple came afterwards. The Rebbe has a beautiful sikh in Chelek Vov, the Kutis Sikh is volume 6, discusses the three opinions and the significance and so on. But getting back to our discussion here, the question here, so based on Rashi, it's very clear, it's an atonement. The other opinion, not necessarily. Okay. And there the Rebbe explains what means atonement because then then the Mishkan and their contribution is like coming from tshuva. The tshuva that came after they repented for the grave sin of the golden calf. So that covers cha- the, uh, the topics of the chapter. Uh, let us see what else. Okay, so let's talk about some other matters. So the next question is, is actually a follow-up to something we discussed last week about the Baal Shem Tov Siddur. So recently, just last few weeks, a new revelation they scanned and digitalized for the public view all the manuscripts in the very powerful library of Agudas Chidi Chabad, library that has all the manuscripts of the Rabbeim and many other manuscripts. So someone writes this question. Is the recent availability of the library manuscripts a form of splurging the treasures? Bizbuza Eitzis. Hello. We learn of Basilegani, Basilegani the mimer, the last mimer that was published from the Friedrich Rebbe, and began and studied Yudshvat that year, 1950. And then Maim and the Rebbe would then every year focus on one chapter and elaborate on it. So we learn in Basiligani that all the treasures are revealed to us in order to bring Mashiach. Where he speaks there about that when you come to fight a battle and to be victorious, the king will splurge all the, plush, all the treasures that he held secret. And he would even put himself on the line in order to achieve victory. Is there any significance in connection to the digital release of the Rebbe's library recently? Do you know if the Rebbe's Siddur was uploaded? Lastly, what can we make of this revelation? Like how can simple, ordinary people use the tools released to further our purpose in this world? Thank you. 
I don't know if I would identify it quite with that. This was a decision made by the librarians, which I commend. I think it's a great thing. Um, one of the reasons is, firstly, that if we want to look up and see and compare something published, you can look at the original manuscript. So it's not just about uh, viewing it. It's not just about sightseeing. Another value. So splurging the, the treasures, I would equate more when the Rabbeim poured out all their secrets in teaching chassidus. When we say the Alter Rebbe's example, that to save the child that's ill, sickly, would crush the most precious stone in the king's crown in order to save the child. That's splurging. What do you mean splurging? It means that you're ready to crush even that crown. I don't think I've seen that example necessarily related to it, but the idea. So when the Rabbeim give us chassidus, that's the real bizbuza itzus. They give us the keiches, the strengths. Now, the library is an extension of the Rabbeim, so in that sense, everything there is part of those Eitzus. So I can't say it doesn't have that uh, certain taste of it, but I just wanted to distinguish, not to minimize in any way, God forbid, the value of this. There's actually, we've seen people are discovering new interesting things, things that we haven't seen before. And you start looking at these manuscripts, I'm sure everybody will find things that uh, some things were published, some things, maybe they're missing lines, missing ideas. So I'm sure great things will come out of this. And for sure, a beautiful step in Now, as far as the lesson about the Rebbe Siddur, I didn't really look through it all. I would assume, why not? The Rebbe has several Siddurim, but I assume that the Rebbe Siddur would maybe be there. I'm not sure if they uploaded that. As far as the revelation, like the Rebbe said with Hey Tevis, the whole purpose is learning. It's not about a museum piece that we're going to watch things. And that's not voyeurism. The purpose is for us to be able to learn in this, appreciate Teda, appreciate Chesidus, implement it in our lives, apply it to our lives, and transform ourselves and the world around us. Which Mashiach said is the key to bring a Mashiach. So anyway, I, for example, I teach Ayin Bez every day. So recently I began comparing some of the printed text to these manuscripts, and I actually found a few things. I had a question where there was the end of a parenthesis. I looked it up, and I was able to find it. Even though those that prepared it were very responsible. But listen, you, people are people. Sometimes you miss something. So there are many ways that this can fit. This is the key to it all, to add and increase passion and excitement to learning and to implementing. That's the whole purpose of what these manuscripts are for in the first place. Why did the Rabbeim invest a non-nafshik, their whole being, their whole soul, into these words that we should live with them? The Ksovim lo himmel, the Ksovim lo said the Rebbe Rashab. I'm going to heaven, but I, the writings I leave to you, the manuscripts, in order for you to have me as I am in heaven, as the Rebbe explains. Additional, just additional note I would add, the Mitla Rebbe writes, one of the introductions to his farm that he published, he published, the Rebbe Mitla Rebbe was a real publisher. He gave names to the books, he prepared them for publication. The Alter Rebbe published Tanya, Shulchan Aruch, But most of the Maimarim were published afterwards. The Mitla Rebbe published a lot of his own, not everything, but Svarim, upon Svarim. So in the introduction of one of the Svarim, he writes, that even though he knows that Anash, Anshay Shlemene, people, have more pleasure 
in a, in a uh, secret manuscript, then when they're given it openly, like in a book, so they may not appreciate it as much. But nevertheless, because we need to bring chassidus to everyone, we do that. You know, so there's something about the manuscripts that makes it feel a little more rare, exotic, a little more ancient. So maybe that can also add, when we look at it, you see it that way. I remember years that I worked in the library, when I worked in Sefer al-Kutim, the Encyclopedia of the Tzemach Tzedek So the Rebbe told us in 1979 to compare. There were new books, new bichlach they were called, new manuscripts that were coming out from, Europe, from Poland. I don't mean new as newly arriving to New York. And many of them had the original manuscripts of the Tzemach Tzedek and the other Rabbeim. So the Rebbe told us to compare to the original of the Tzemach Tzedek, and we found many different differences. We asked the Rebbe questions about different discrepancies. So I remember sitting in that room, that musty smell, that literally you felt like you're going back generations. You see, the Rabbeim wrote these pages, their ink on this paper. You can see where the ink may have spilled. You see the middle of Rebbe's pages where at the bottom of the page, like we're told, he wrote so quickly, it went off the page to the, pa- to the table. You could see half lines. It just comes alive in a very different way. So when you look at the manuscripts, it has that you know, a little closer to the source. The published work is already copied from there and typeset. When you look at it, you literally like feel this is the hand of the Rebbe. The hand of the Rabbeim wrote these words. So it adds a certain element of connection in that sense. And I'm sure more can be said about it. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> the, the segue sometimes of these questions makes me smile because they're not always so, uh, so logical. Um, but uh, next question is, who should we support in a war between Russia and Ukraine. Now, hopefully there'll be no war, but we know there are definitely tensions. And he could say, why am I reading this on Chassidah Supply? This is a news item. But it right away brought me reminiscent of, of course, the Franco-Russo war, Russia and France, where the Alter Rebbe wanted Russia to win the war. And others, other Gdeli Yisrael, wanted to, felt that France should win the war. That would be better for the Jews physically. But the Alter Rebbe said physically may be better, but spiritually would be more challenging. The Alter Rebbe ultimately prevailed. And we know the destiny of nations is determined on Rosh Hashanah. So nations have an effect on us. But here's the interesting twist. Russia and Ukraine is not like necessarily Russia and France of the time of the Alter Rebbe. Do they represent two different um, ideologies? I mean, if you want to say Ukraine represents more the European, the Western view, and Russia is still more communist or more dictatorship, perhaps. But on the other hand, you could argue President Putin has been very good for the Jewish people. So I don't know if I have an answer, but let me read the question. On the one hand, look at all the horrible things the Russian government did to us over the years, and particularly in recent memory, the hardships they put on the Friedrich Rebbe. On the other hand, in many cases, Ukrainian nationalists gladly assisted the Nazis and joined Einsatz Group in mobile death squads and killed us. Perhaps we should root for both sides to annihilate each other. Whatever happens, I just hope, I just hope law-abiding innocent civilians that have no blood on their hands in both countries are spared from suffering. And I would add, all innocent people, and especially also the Jews, 
these wars don't always have good implications, but we have to think good. Look, I don't want to get into the politics of this, meaning understanding what Mr. Putin's intentions are, whether it's nationalistic, whether it's pride, whether it's his way of rattling the sword, the saber, in order to somewhat intimidate the Western world and NATO. These are already, I'll leave questions for people who are better experts than me, or maybe no one's an expert in these matters. To talk about it from a Chassidish point of view, Chassidish apply, look, the Rebbe was born in Nikolaev, that's Ukraine. The Rebbeim lived mostly in Russia, Belarus. So from that point of view, I mean, historically, they both are places of uh, saturated with Chassidus and Chassidim. In both is a renaissance of Jewish life, a Chassidish life, throughout Russia, in Ukraine, in Dnepropetrovsk, and in other cities, Kiev, and so on. So from our point of view, we wish for peace. Why? Because both of them let us all live in peace. The forces that are at work that are determining, I don't think have anything to do with Jews. It's not like saying, if one wins over the other, or if there's a battle, it'll be better for us. Why can't we just continue to thrive? That would be our best blessing. We pray that there'd be peace and let the Jewish communities and the Chassidish Chabad communities both in Russia and in Ukraine thrive. There's no battle between them, thank God. So it's a matter of political battles. So I would say it's not our issue to get involved there. Not because we want to be politically correct, because what might have come to us? What difference does it make to us? And I think to myself, if the Rebbe would speak about it, the Rebbe always looked at it, what difference does it make to your life, to your avodah? If anything, it'll just be disruptive, any battles and wars. So why would we want it? And thank God things are growing and they should grow even further. And I speak from the outside. I'm not living in either of the countries. So I'm not, I have no allegiances. I can't, but I say, I could say things that are politically incorrect too. But I don't see any reason to become part of this. Again, if you said that one prevails is better for the Jews than the other, but if things just remain status quo, perfectly fine from my point of view. Obviously, we want the Gula Amitiz Vashlema, but I don't think that's, this battle is over that. So that's what I would comment. If anybody wants to weigh in, I'd love to hear from you. This, I, I, I like to believe that this program is not just mine, even though I'm the host, but something that all of us can participate in through your questions and your comments, and I'd love to hear, and I'll read whatever people write to me. As long as it's not offensive or something that's completely ludicrous. Even that I've read, to be honest, but you get the point. Okay. In no, but in no particular order, next question is also somewhat of a follow-up, but also something new we spoke about last week, where someone writes, should I name someone after my father-in-law who's been accused of abuse, child abuse? So someone writes, naming someone after an abuser. Is it appropriate to name someone after an abuser or a criminal? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I just finished listening to your very fine class last week, February 13th, regarding naming a child after someone. Many years ago, my husband and I went to Rabbi Dvorkin together. Rabbi Zalma Shimon Dvorkin was the Rav in this community. When I was expecting my first child to ask a few questions about child naming. I am a Balash Tshuva, and one question I asked was about naming after a certain great-grandmother who was not from, not religious. The lady had a very difficult life, including losing several older children in accidents during her lifetime, Rahman al God forbid, and separating from her husband who was mentally unbalanced. Jews rarely divorced in, 19, 
in the 1930s in the U.S. Upon hearing this, Rabbi Dvorka wrinkled up his nose and looked pained. I will give his answer, which was half in Yiddish and half in English, since I don't recall all the Yiddish properly. Nem nocha gute mensch who lived a good life. Which means, take another person who lived a good life and name them after that person. I tried to explain that she was a good person, but he waved off the question and refused to say more. It could be that as soon as he had heard the lady wasn't from, he decided. Meanwhile, the words he chose for his answer made a strong impression on us and helped us in deciding upon names for all our children. Baruch Hashem. I'm sharing this in case it can be helpful for others. I wish everyone an easy time in having healthy children and in naming them well. And to have an easy upbringing for all of them. Hatzlacha in your vital work. I don't know all the details and circumstances, and I'm surely not going to sit here and overrule what Rabbi Dvorkin said. Obviously, it's an opinion. I don't know if it's a halacha, a law. But there are a lot of things you can say. It could be that he actually heard other things, not the firm kite part. I did not hear not to name someone after a firm person. That, if you say criminal, you say someone that died young or tragically. So there are questions, maybe naming, adding a name. But not from, I don't know if that's the reason. It could be because of the other stuff that you described. So I don't want to speculate, then I don't know. Again, this is not something that I think we can write a rule about. It's good that you went to ask someone, and that's what I would advise anyone in this situation. Because let's say someone's accused of something, and it's not really true, or you're not sure. Is that, what, is that a factor? And then there's the element of honoring. Let's say it's your own parent. So this, there's more to look at in each case by case. Always good to do with a good mentor and mashpia that you trust. I know some people don't like that answer. They want to have black and white, but that's not the way you answer these things. Case by case, hear the details, and decisions are made based on that. Remember, when you name someone, let's say the name Mayer or the name Moshe or someone, so even if your father or grandfather or family may have not been a perfect person, Moshe is still a name of a great man, Moshe Rabbeinu. So that's also into the equation. Do we consider that or don't we? So there's different elements of Shema Garden with the power of a name. And again, this is best addressed on practical level. Theoretically, we can talk about it. There's Sikhs from the Rabbanit, you know, about different names, names of wicked people. How can we name a chapter in the Torah? Bolok, Kairach, people who were defiant, who were against what God wanted. So there's more to be said on the topic, but for now, I th- that would be the way I would approach. The next is actually, um, I'm going to do a little follow-up about how should we address sexual abuse and its cover-up, because thank God, more less questions are coming in on it. Hopefully that's an indicator that the problem is less, um, but there's still questions on it, so I want to address that. This is still going back over, back from, chap, from, from episode 386, now we're 393, so we're talking about seven weeks ago. But still there are questions, and I think it's important to address, so let me talk about some of them. And then we have some other things I want to address as time allows. So let me go and read from here. Okay, so I did a lot. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, it's a tragedy what happened to the victims and how it was handled by the firm community. 
I would like to address another side. When an incident, when an innocent person is being accused by someone of inappropriate behavior. I was, my, I was abused myself as a child by a family member and later on as an adult by a stranger. Baruch Hashem, thank God I'm okay. I, so, I suffered, but I overcame it and became a successful adult. We hosted a girl who was in therapy, suffered from bipolar and was unstable. Long story short, we had to tell her to leave. As an act of revenge, she came out with an accusation against my husband of inappropriate behavior with her. I know it's false. I trust my husband, and as a former victim, I am hypervigilant of any potential perpetrator. My kids are knowledgeable about privacy, their right to their own body, and appropriate touch from age, from the age they learn to talk. There is no chance of our guests or us at any given time being in a closed room, and there are cameras everywhere. I am terrified of these rumors becoming public and damaging our reputation. Even when spoken innocent schmutz, even when spoken, even when spoken someone innocent, schmutz still remains. Meaning even when a person is innocent, the schmutz can remain just by bad-mouthing them. How do we find balance in our community of giving voice to the victims, but at the same time filtering out false accusations that could destroy lives? Lashonara kills three or many more when family and children and friends suffer from this. What do you advise us? Should we be proactive and approach Bezdin for a Moitzi Shemra first? I did address this while I was talking about the topic, because as horrendous and horrible the crime is, and especially the cover-ups, it's equally problematic if someone innocent is accused. I will say this, even though this is not airtight, and I've spoken to many experts on the topic, if there's such a thing called an expert, that generally speaking, if someone wants to get even with someone, they don't necessarily pick this, sex abuse, as an accusation. This doesn't mean that they can't, and there are sure some that could, especially if they're unstable. But generally speaking, that doesn't mean that an accusation should just be accepted just because somebody accuses someone. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty. But because of the extreme cover-ups that are going on, you can imagine that the, the extreme reaction, the knee-jerk reaction to that is to go the other way. We're not going to let any cover-ups, which can sometimes turn very extreme and actually so an innocent can be hurt in the, in the process. Which is why it's critical that this not be done by vigilantes and lynch mobs. If a person is accused by an individual or by several individuals, this has to first, before everything else, be addressed. You can't cover it up. Now the question is, if you know someone abused you, should you go out and yell in the streets that this person's a raidif? They're like running with a knife. So I would advise that though it should not be covered up, it should be reported to the police, to anyone. But it doesn't mean you have to then go ahead and be the one that yells in the streets. Let the police do that. Let due process begin because end of the day, you need someone to investigate it. That this, this doesn't mean we assume that the, the, the accuser is wrong. They have to be honored and respected because too much damage has been done by people not being believed. But at the same time, we also have to keep that in mind. That's why we need responsible minds who are not into cover-ups and are not afraid of addressing and confronting an issue to address it, but also address the possibility of innocence. I had a situation where I was called by someone accusing a certain educator of abuse. Now, 
I obviously was sensitive and I listened and I assumed that she's telling me what, what an authentic story. But I know that the next step would be I need to do something. I said, is there anyone else that you know that has done this? Not because I question you. It just will become more credible. So indeed there were, but they didn't want to speak. They spoke with me, but they wouldn't speak to others. So when I heard from three, four people and very different stories, yes, they could have colluded. That's always a possibility, but that's why I don't come to any conclusion. But it was very likely based on different factors. And I had no extra grind. I wasn't looking to accuse this person or not to accuse them. I wasn't a relative. I had, no, I had no agenda. So what did I do? I did alert certain people who are more responsible and had direct influence there. And they went to the investigation and it was discovered that it was correct. Even though the person denied it and his wife denied it and everything. And it's still an issue because it's, you know, people don't want to acknowledge. But there's no question that it has to be done responsibly. And I don't have a black and white answer. Can someone be accused? I mean, a lot of people who've been accused are claiming that, that they're innocent. Somebody has an agenda. Can they be trusted? Of course, that's the best excuse. If you did something, all you got to do is a vendetta against me. That's why we have to know that a person is a gay bedover, either a potential abuser or alleged abuser, and even the person accusing they may be on a gay bedover, but you have to look at That's why you need to be wise and look at it in a very balanced way. I don't have an exact formula. I just would say that all of us need to see it's our problem. We have to put our heads together. And when something happens, we have to act and then figure out how to approach it in a proper way. And this is by talking to Rabbonim and talking to mentors and talking to authorities. And when guided properly, and it's not, we're not looking to minimize or cover up or hide something, the Abishtu will help that we'll be able to find the right truths and clarity and how to deal with it. Now what happens if you know for sure the people deny it? I've had this too. People have called me. It's not true. So I said, so sue them. We can't do that. Why not? Because, uh, uh, because there was a confession recorded. Why did you record a confession? Because we were blackmailed. So you see, I'm just giving you an example. It gets so convoluted. So I would take it case by case, and you need to constantly balance things. This is the story, unfortunately, when you're dealing with such perversion and such criminal acts, it's always complicated. There's collateral damage. I'm not even getting into now. What about the family of an abuser? Are they guilty by association? See how it gets complicated. But I hope I address some of it, and we'll talk more about this topic. Okay. So this one, let me do one more. In this regard, this is a very long one, so I don't think I'm going to do this one. But I will address this since we're on the topic already. So, somewhat related, the question came in like this. By reading a book, do we connect to its author as we do to a composer through listening to his music? So, let me read that to you. Chassidus teaches us that Nagunim come from the heart, and therefore one has to be careful to who and what he listens to, because he'll be connecting to the soul of the composer. We see this idea in the Torah too, that Hashem put himself into the Torah, into the Torah, like we mentioned before, Anon Nafshi, Ksovis Yehovis, God infused himself, instilled him, engraved himself into the words that he gave, the Torah, and therefore when we learn Torah, we connect to Hashem. 
to God. Similar, we are taught regarding the chassidus of the rabbim, that we connect to them through listening to their memoriam and to studying their teachings. Do we say the same regarding an author? Do we connect to the soul of the author when reading his books? If yes, then there should be no doubt regarding the books of the person that was accused, who took his life, as no parent would want their, their pure kids to connect to the soul of such a creep and sick man. And then the person, the person quotes a letter from the Rebbe, I'm just looking at the letter, let's see. And it does talk about Igris Kodesh, volume 18, page 330. That it's important what students, what they're reading, because if they're reading something that's inappropriate, it can have an effect on them. So the person is continuing, is there more about this idea? Thank you so much for what you do. Okay, yeah, I see no reason that there's a difference whether it's song or whether in Kedusha, so obviously also in Klippa, that a person who writes something, their soul is somewhat invested in it, even if they write good things. I did talk about it somewhat when I first addressed this issue. One of the topics was that. And there have been some studies done about can you read a book by somebody that maybe the book itself may be a good book, but the person who wrote it is, is dubious or questionable. When it comes to things like this, you have to also take into account that there are people here that have been hurt by this person. And reading a book, forget about it. Even if you find some merit in it, is it appropriate to bring it into the, into the environment for that reason? But this is an additional point, that the author's spirit is in there. And that would be a case to be made that if the spirit, that this person is tumma, impure, these books then carry some of that and you don't want them around you. So I would tend to agree with that. Okay, another final question for now, at least, on this topic is this. With all the talk about sexual abuse, how about addressing mental and other forms of abuse? So here's how someone worded it. The whole world is screaming about the abuse of this individual and others. There's another abuse, which is mental abuse and bullying. That problem hasn't been tackled. Where to turn about mental abuse? Thank you. I am speaking on behalf of mental abuse by the teachers and people in the profession of education. Where to turn? Where to turn when your child is mentally abused and bullied? So first of all, not to console you with this, I would not say that sexual abuse has been addressed. It's been talked about. It's definitely not been resolved. Now, mental abuse is another issue, a big issue, bullying. It could be psychological abuse. It doesn't have to even be physical. And it could be tremendously hurtful and damaging. And I want to say here for the record, absolutely should be addressed. I don't think this is a competition. Any form of violating someone, shaming someone, hurting someone, is a crime against the people and a person, a crime against God. So I'm not, this is not minimized. We happen to be talking about that because that came up. But this definitely deserves addressing. So if you want to ask questions, I've talked about bullying and other things. If you want to ask me any questions specifically, I'm happy to address it, but I'm glad that you pointed out. And then there's other forms of abuse that we haven't even mentioned here. There's physical abuse, literally hitting someone. I mentioned psychological. There's all kinds of different things that need to be addressed. A human being was created in the divine image. You have no right to defile, to shame, to in any way hurt the divine image. 
frankly, even if it wasn't that case, you don't have no right to even hurt anything in this world. Baltashkis, you're not even allowed to damage a, a, fl- a flower, a mineral. But how much more so a human being? The greatest crime possible, especially when you're talking about innocent children, defenseless, vulnerable. As I say, and I say again, we, every generation, will be judged for one thing. What did you do with your children? Did you protect them? Don't touch. Don't violate. Don't in any way hurt. My, my anointed ones, my children, God says. So this platform, even though I tried to focus on the positive, but Chassidus applied, is applied both to things that we should be doing and things we shouldn't be doing. And how to address things when they're done the wrong way. And I will use this platform in every possible way to address and defend and protect the innocent, especially the children. Because that to me is the, great, the greatest mission of our lives. And I hope you feel the same way. Okay. So we have some... Uh, let's address another question here completely. This, one, this next one I really didn't want to speak about, to be honest. But I keep getting questions on the topic and I just feel I can't ignore it any longer. It was around Yutzfat when I got a bunch of these questions. And I didn't want to talk about it at Yutzfat time, but we'll address it now. What is the story with the Rebbets in the Chamedina after Yutzfat? And here are some of the questions that came in about this. In the spirit of, as I said, addressing everything and things as questions, I'd rather be addressed that people just carry questions and not have answers or nobody wants to talk about it which only I think makes it worse so let's talk about that Rebbe's here what happened to the Friedrich Rebbe's Rebbe's wife Rebbe's Nechamedina after Yudshvat was she trying to hold on to power by refusing to relinquish the Friedrich Rebbe's Shreimel to his lawful successor meaning her son-in-law the second son-in-law the Rebbe can you explain the story behind and why some Lubavitchers feel it is no longer right to name a daughter with that name? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I've always wondered about the Friedrich Rebbe's wife, Rebetzin Chamedina. It seems she wasn't so popular or well-known as some other Rebetzins. I learned that she couldn't hear, that she was deaf, that's correct. Was she born that way? No. It was due to events. Why do Chabad families not name their girls after her? What insight can you shed about her? Thank you for all your devotion and caring for the community. Hashem should bench you with brachas. Adli die. And then another person writes, there isn't much I hear about Rebbe in his life with the Friedrich Rebbe. And I heard she was hard of hearing. Can you enlighten me, please? Thank you so much. May you be showered with brachas, an avid listener. Okay. Now, I wasn't around in Tavshin Yud. I wasn't even born. My understanding, briefly, and beginning with a tremendous disclaimer that in general it's not healthy and it's not our job to arankrichen, that's the expression I would use, to meddle and to stick our heads into Beis Harav, things happening in the Rebbe families. This is Rabbeim, the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbetsons. Yes, were there issues through the generations? There were issues not just in this, there was issues in the time of the Mitle Rebbe Rashab with the Kapister, there were issues in previous generations. So some of it has been documented. As Chassidim, our focus is always on bringing light and holiness and Kedusha and Chassidus into the world. The reason I'm addressing it is because people are writing it. 
But the real focus has to be what, is it, what difference does it make to you or to me? Since it doesn't make a difference, why are we talking about it? Is it just sensationalism? And yet I will talk about some things just to, just to allay people's concerns. When the, when the Friedrich Rebbe was in the Stalag, passed away, there was officially no tzavah. The Friedrich Rebbe did not leave any written instructions that we know of. He had an older son-in-law called the Rashag, Abshmayor Gerari, who headed the yeshiva, worked with the Friedrich Rebbe, and then was the head of the yeshiva, raised money for it. He was the... And the second son-in-law was the Rebbe, who married the Rebbe Tzanchai Mushka. There was a third son-in-law, Menachem Mendel Hornerstein, married the third daughter of the Friedrich Rebbe, Shana, but they were both killed, tragically, in the Holocaust. These are all children of the Friedrich Rebbe, three daughters. So if you look at it purely from a Rebbe point of view, that's all we need to know. Were they perfect human beings that are shak? Is Rebbe Tzanchana? Is it our business? I would say it's not. But things did come out, especially in the court case. We know that their son, Barry Garari, and we know also that with the blessing of his mother, Chana, did agree to take books, which of course offended the Rebbe from the point of view that this was a challenge to the very Friedrich Rebbe's Nesias and leadership. The Rebbe said that. They want to make another Levaya, another funeral. So clearly there are things the Rebbe said that that's why I feel I can speak about a bit. But this is not being personal here. So after the Friedrich Rebbe passed away, yes, the Rashag, I again don't know who was driving behind it, who was the driving force, but there was definitely a feeling among some of the family members that he's the oldest son-in-law and he deserves to be the next successor. The Chassidim didn't accept that. or didn't even consider it, to be honest. They accepted the Rebbe. A Rebbe is decided by Chassidim. And the Abish ultimately decides. And the Rashag actually, within a year, a few years, in the first years, came around and would come to Fabrengat. And he ended up being one of the greatest chassidim of the Rebbe, which is another discussion. So you see that it's more than just a black and white thing. And wasn't. Now, the Rebbe Tzana appear apparently sided with that side. Was she the driving force? Was it Khan? I'm not sure. I don't know. I never did an investigation because, again, I didn't feel it's my business. When the Rebbe Tzana passed away, Tafshalam at Aleph, Yud, Sarah Batavis, and they read her tzavah, her will, so she didn't make any reference to the Rebbe as being the, the next successor, which the Rebbe reacted to. He said, call me when there's a Leviah, but it was clearly that she was not recognizing that. What her thinking is, I will never know, and I don't think we'll ever know. Was it coming from a place of holy gedusha? Was it coming from a practical place about insulting or honoring? Was it coming she wasn't used to the Rebbe, didn't understand the Rebbe? We'll never know. And again, is it relevant to us? Not necessarily. So generally speaking, the, the word in the street was that she was not for the Rebbe. Against? I don't know. I mean, the fact is the Rebbe ate meals there till she passed away. All the meals were eaten there. I'm sure he honored her, the mother of the Rebbe Sanchai Mushka, the wife of the Friedrich Rebbe. And I think beyond that, I don't have anything more to say. Are there people who will give you all kinds of, um, all kinds of uh, statements and some of them expletives on this? That's not the language of Chassidim, not the language of a Rebbe. 
that we should be speaking about the Rebbe families. It's not our business, again. How does it change anything? Our job is to spread chassidus. This in no way weakens the mission of the Rebbe, the mission of the Friedrich Rebbe, and so on. <clears throat> so for all practical purposes, I don't know what difference it makes. I like to think of chassidus applied. Is there something applied by this? Applied is maybe how we address it. This should not be an issue or a factor in our work and service of what we need to be filling the mission of the seventh generation of bringing the Geula Mashiach through Yefutsa Nesach Chutzah. That's the most important thing. Now, as far as names, I mean, I have cousins, I have people I know that are named Nechamedinus. I'm not sure. Are there some people don't want a name maybe for the above reasons? Is there a formal statement that, I don't know. Unfortunately, I've also seen the other side. That people who come out and spread stories and become like warriors in this regard. And that, to me, is even worse than anything. Because who, who appointed you to be a warrior? The Rebbe called you in and said, your job is to curse somebody or your job is to fight somebody? So I look at it more like Wichsidus says. People have Achzorius inside them. They have a cruelty. And they found a way, an outlet here. Kavyochel dressed up in the name of Iskashus. To me, Iskashus is spreading the Rebbe. Chsidus, Teireh. Spreading the Rebbe's teachings. You want to be aggressive? That's where you should be aggressive. To take Vura and use it in negative ways, I don't see at all basis for it at, at all. The Rebbe went, yes, to court about the books, but it was not about personal. It was about this, the court case was not about an individual. It was about the value, the books, who do the books belong to? Who does the Rebbe belong to, as the Rebbetson said? To the Chassidim. It was a battle, for, it was a battle and a victory for generations about the very value, the public nature that a Rebbe is not a private citizen. And not that the Rebbe and the Rebbetson Chaimushka are more heir to the throne or to the books than someone else, than another child. No, the whole thing is a different story. A Rebbe is, is, is a tzibur, ain't a mess. There's something eternal about it, and his books, and so on. Going from the Alter Rebbe, going back to the Teda, no nafshik, sovis, sovis. It's a far more ideological and a far more spiritual concept. Were the individuals involved? Yes, but we need to depersonalize. It's not a war against an individual. It's a war and a concept. That even now, frankly, there are people who may still feel that way, privatizing things that are supposed to be seen as nitzchim and eternal of the Rebbe. So enough to said about this topic. I want to now, there was another question on this, so I might as well finish, which is also about the Friedrich Rebbe, but a completely different vein. This, frankly, I don't have information about, but I decided I'll put it out there, and maybe somebody knows something. Did the Friedrich Rebbe wear a, bullet, a bulletproof vest for a period of time after receiving anonymous death threats? And how can we reconcile this with the story where he tells the Soviet prison interrogator that he doesn't fear guns because he has one God in many worlds? I have not heard this story. Um, the other story we all know, and I'm sure it does not, even if you find out it's true, it could have been a prudent, a prudent manner, not because, just because when a guy's pointing a gun to the Friedrich Rebbe's head and saying, if you don't cooperate, we'll see what, what this task, the, the, this uh, object, this revolver has changed many people's mind. The Friedrich Rebbe says it can only affect someone that has one world and many gods, not someone who has one god and two worlds. That's a whole different story. That doesn't mean they didn't lock the Friedrich Rebbe's door or that you do everything possible prudently to protect if there's a threat. It's not exterior. Putting wearing a bulletproof vest, I'm not saying the story is true, but if it is, is not a, a opposite of betachem. 
And it's not about Mesidus Nefesh. No, I'm going to go out in the street in a dangerous place. Friedrich Rebbe had to escape from Nazi Europe. That's what we do, but he's not going to compromise his values. That's the paint of the story. So if anybody has heard about this, please share. I have not. Maybe another person asked, with relevance to Yitzvah, is it true that the Friedrich Rebbe carried a gun after someone made death threats against him? Okay, now the plot thickens. He's gone from a bulletproof desk to a gun. How does we reconcile that? I guess it's the same question asking if the famous statement of not being afraid because he had only one God in many worlds. So I answered that question. Okay. So that covers that. I'm glad I got that resolved. Okay, let's see here. So finally, let's go to the Chassidus question. Just seeing if there's anything else I want to read here. Yeah, the Chassidus question. At the end of chapter 29, this week's Chitas in Tanya, the Alter Rebbe says that Sveikas and Amuna, doubts in faith, are really just the workings of the Sitra Achra, of the other side, and that every Jew inherently believes in God. Although this would make sense from the perspective of the soul, can you say that a person can consciously relate to this? I find it very understandable for a person to struggle with faith. How can there be an all-good God running every facet of life, and yet at the same time have a world filled with tragedies. I think it gets even more challenging if someone learns chassidus and the idea of achdus Hashem, divine unity. How do you rationalize that there is actually nothing more than God and all the horrible events which occur? How is that Hashem? I am aware there are certain answers for these questions, but I go back to my original question related to the end of chapter 29 in Tanya. Can one truly, on a conscious level, you probably mean on a rational level, tap into not having Sveikis and Amuna, or are they just being delusional? Is the Alter Rebbe speaking from the perspective of the Neshama and not necessarily saying that this is something related to our intellect? Really, looking forward to hearing your response and thank you for everything you do. Well, first of all, just because Questions, faith questions in Amuna and um, struggling with faith may have legitimate argument. That doesn't mean it's not coming from Sitrach. Like, for example, in heaven, a Neshama doesn't have these doubts. Because there it's very clear. There's Ailma Emes. But of course, there's a question when you see how could good people suffer? The Malochim cried to God. This is Tere and this is its reward. So they're not mutually exclusive. The fact of Sitra Acher, what Alter Rebbe is trying to say, is that even when we have questions, and big questions on God, and Moshe accused God of doing evil to the people, and Avram said, when God was going to destroy Zedoim, people will say, the judge of the entire world is not doing justice. Well, there was a legitimate reason. Because the fact of the matter is, we are entitled, and we pray to God, and we challenge God. Faith doesn't mean passive acceptance. It means challenging God. And yet, obviously, at the end of the day, God decides. So we have great questions of why the Holocaust happened, why tragedies happen. And, and it's often it can create, create questions in faith. Al-Tareb is saying that despite that, the reality of God is always real. Just because you have questions doesn't make it real. Just because you don't know that it's real, because you have your questions, you should know that it's coming from a place of sitra 
Because the fact is that if you had clarity that there's a God, even if you don't have answers, you wouldn't necessarily have doubt. You'd say, I don't understand. You could even be upset. You could even argue with God. Moshe argued with God, but it doesn't say Asfekas and Amuna. So we have to separate between the two. So realistically speaking, on a conscious level, from the perspective of the Neshama, for sure that's the case. And we have the ability to come to a place. You know, because you could have complete people who went through the Holocaust and their faith was not shaken at all. Now, some of them will say, I have more faith in God because I realize I can't have faith in human beings. I can't trust people. That doesn't mean they have, don't have, that they have answers. That doesn't mean they have no complaints and no arguments. And we could tap into it, and it's vital for us to know that because we want to be able to access something. When people suffer a great tragedy, you know what they need most? Not answers. They need strength. And you get strength from God. The same God that you may have tightness to and complaints is the God that can give you strength to get through the most difficult times. I know it's an interesting paradox. That's the key thing to remember. And they just created a word. That's what he said to Moshe. Those that want to make a mistake will make a mistake. I created an agnostic universe. You could err. You could misunderstand. You could misunderstand the concealment of the divine and think that the God is not there, God forbid. The child stops looking, as the Rebbe said in his famous talk on Tobi Shvat, Tavshin Lamates. The child stops looking because he can't find God. That doesn't mean there's no God. It means you stopped looking. The Alter Rebbe is saying, so it's the Sitra Akhri that blinds us to think not to give, to, that causes us to give up. But don't give up. Because there's, the truth is there. At the same time, we're not delegitimizing, invalidating someone. Someone has questions and doubts. It's a very part of the normal process to be skeptical when you see things like this. But at the same time, know that it's God, the same God that you don't understand is the God that gives you the greatest strength of all. And that's why in Chassidus it talks about the gili of the helam ha'atzmi. That the darkest helam, the things that are completely concealed and don't make sense here, actually reveal, ultimately will reveal, something that is fundamentally beyond revelation on a higher lamal yusa level. Okay, we should only hear good news, as we go from Odorishan to Odorshani. It should only be one joy greater to another joy, simcha, as I said. And we should be zeichu finally merit to see it all revealed. The gula mitis vashlema. Chsidus applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you so much. Be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chsidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chsidusapplied.com slash donate.